0: Here we are, First uh, Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, and it reads, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely in human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it was written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, that this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntary, I have a reward. If not voluntary, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Amen. When I um, first opened this uh, passage I have to confess I was initially um, embarrassed by it. Well, you may be wondering why. Well, because I read it solely with myself in mind, and I would normally recommend that as any approach. When you're approaching scripture, you ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? But I don't go quite that far. I was looking at myself simply in my role here as a site pastor and on a superficial level as a, a beneficiary of your generosity. So what can I say from this passage? This doesn't sound like me standing here with another offering basket and saying, hey folks, come on, give me a little bit more to keep me going. <laughs> you know, it, it, it didn't sit very well. But you might at least understand that fault when, again, just like me, when you first open a passage and you read the first part of this chapter, we see Paul, he, he builds up a very solid argument as to why the Corinthians should recognize him firstly as an apostle, but also his rights that are associated with being an apostle. Namely, to receive support from the Christian communities that he has helped to establish. But the thing is, if if that was the sum of the passage, if that was the sum of the message that I wanted to deliver to you this morning, I think it would be an epic fail, certainly on my part. But it's only as the passage reaches its twist and its climax in verses 12, 15, and 18, we see that Paul is trying to teach the Christian community in Corinth, a very important lesson, and hence the title of this, uh, this word this morning, namely My Right to No Rights. Mm. To help us to properly understand what Paul is trying to say to us, we, we need to consider this whole chapter in the context of the whole letter to the Corinthians. If you had no knowledge of the, the previous chapter, chapter eight, where Paul talks about the, the food issue of meats offered to idols, chapter nine would seem a bit of an oddity. The opening words in chapter nine seem to come like a, a bolt out of the blue, like, wh- wh- have I missed something? Where did that come from, Paul? What's given rise to this sudden uh, argument or need to affirm his position in apostle and the rights that come with it? But it's only as we strive to, to look closer into the passage and really understand where Paul is coming from and where he's going that there is a very definite word for each and every one of us. And it's a word that speaks into our sense of identity in Christ, of who we are and our purposes. Just for a, a very brief summary, in the, the previous chapter, in chapter 8, Paul um, has taken up the issue that's been affecting people's conscience. And that is whether they're free to eat meat that's being offered to idols in the marketplace or not. I will not spend too long in it, but it has been a real issue. And it, it, it does have a bearing on, on why Paul raises the subject of his rights as well. Basically, for some of the folks in the Christian community, the idea of buying meat, let alone eating this kind of meat that has been bought in a marketplace, was a real no-no. I wouldn't even go there. The reason for it was that, and it was just—it uh, was tradition, it was custom, it's just the way that things was done. Was that every meat animal carcass that would be sold as produce in the marketplace? Would have been previously offered as a as a sacrifice uh, dedicated to one of the, the pantheon of gods in uh, greek culture so you can immediately understand there would have been division in the christian community as to whether eating this kind of meat was okay or not to some of them it, it was akin to idolatry it wouldn't go anywhere near it yet for others in the community it was nothing more than just a cultural practice that didn't have any bearing on our relationship to Christ. So therefore, what we find in chapter 9 is that Paul is continuing an argument that he'd started in chapter 8. Paul has been dealing with the strong who asserted their rights, namely, I can eat whatever I like, and if it offends you, well, too bad. This is my right. He has told them that this is wrong. But he now proceeds to show them that he consistently applied this principle to himself. He practices what he preaches. And from what Paul said, it's plain that some of his critics held that Paul's acceptance of restrictions on himself showed that he wasn't an apostle for some reason. And this is, I like this verse, it says, They had not learned that freedom isn't a license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. Let me just read that again. Freedom is not license to do what I want, but liberation to do what I ought. You know, it seems to be this attitude that seems to keep popping up throughout Corinthians. It's a common attitude that seems to be prevalent in the the life of the, the Christian community in Corinth. You know, they might be rich in many other ways, but they're infants and so many others. And it, particularly when it comes to loving the neighbour as themselves, dying to serve, they seem out of sync with the pulse of the faith that they proclaim to follow, and certainly out of step with the one that proclaim to follow. They seem to have this air of me, 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 it's all about me. They're so hot on what their rights and liberties are that damn anybody else who would impede them. You know, whether rightly or wrongly, we tend to uh, characterize uh, people groups or nations and things like that. And, you know, and Paul did it himself. He, he quoted when he was talking about uh, the Cretes uh, one occasion. Let me just check first of all, is there anybody from the island of Crete here? <laughs> That's okay, because it's not very polite. He said, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. <laughs> and it always feels... <laughs> I feel like I always have to apologise for Paul if I ever go to Greece. I've never been before, but <laughs> it's a bit of shame, isn't it? Forever known as liars, evil brutes, lazy glunts Are they still like that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm going to take liberty as uh, Paul did. And if I could um, condense the the Corinthians, I would perhaps describe them as let me see how I wrote it down. As complainers, pleasure seekers, materialistic, immoral devices, and fearlessly independent to the point of arrogant. How's that for a caricature? <laughs> well, if I ask what the Corinthians like, all I can say is I think there's hope for us then. <laughs> so be encouraged. You know, you know. It reminds me that there used to be this uh, medieval concept, you know, that the Earth was the, the centre of the universe. You know, everything revolved around us, or me. You know, it was this idea. I mean, there was no there was no reason for it. You know, the whole idea that the sun, the moon, the stars, the whole cosmos revolved around the Earth. As I said, there was no scientific basis for it. It was a, an arrogant presumption, you know, that the whole universe revolves around us. We are the pinnacle of creation, so therefore the whole of creation must revolve around us. It wasn't until later that Galileo challenged this concept and others after him that we had a, a right idea of the way the universe works. And in the same way, Paul wants to do some heart surgery with the Corinthian community as, as well. He wants to draw them out of this mentality that it's all about me, 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 and my rights. It's not about you, you, you. It's about Christ. And the way he does this is that he deliberately, in a way, shoehorns himself into this worldview that the Corinthians are working from. And this is the point I want to stress he wants to put a cross to them. Choose selflessness, not selfishness. As I say, it's in their cultural DNA to, to you know, challenge for their rights. It's, this is my right. My, I've got a right for this. This is my right in this. We see it again and again. And I mean, it, we don't have to look too far in Corinthians that we see this attitude. I mean, he's already uh, chastised them for them having lawsuits amongst each other. It seems to be, I don't know whether it's a Greek culture thing, but this whole thing about rights is my right. Well, if this is where they're working from, Paul is going to step into that world and hopefully make them realise the fallacy there with their thinking. So he begins by building an airtight case against the Corinthians. And when they realise what Paul has done and what they haven't done, I think they'll be aghast that they have allowed to continue an infringement on his rights, but only for him to cast them aside for the greater prize that is Christ and his glory. So the case begins, and it begins with the fundamentals first. Paul is indeed an apostle. Not in the same sense as the 12 who were chosen. They they operated in a very unique situation. They walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus in his earthly ministry. They were specifically appointed to almost for a a symbolic 12, representing the 12 tribes of, um, uh, of Israel. But the word apostle can also mean messenger, a messenger of Christ. So Paul was certainly an apostle. Not in the same sense as the 12, but he was an apostle. And he did have a very distinct and an impressive CV, nonetheless. You only have to read of his conversion experience in Acts. You know, it's an interesting question that, you know, that Paul's conversion is estimated to be within a year to two years of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And it, it does raise an interesting question as to, as to whether he ever actually saw Jesus prior to the, to the, the crucifixion. We don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing it open as a, a speculative question, but consider that they moved in the same circles. It does raise the, the wonder, did he at least ever see Jesus on earth before his ascension? Certainly by his closeness to the religious authorities that were against Jesus, he certainly must have been aware of him, at least. But the important thing is, is what happened on the road to Damascus. Paul tells us himself, he has seen the Lord. He saw Jesus. Not in the same way that others had seen him, but he did have a physical experience with the living Christ on the road to Damascus. And it changed his entire life. And not only did it change his life, but it changed the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands upon others that came after. And his remit was specifically different as well from the other apostles'. They largely continued in the, the, in the Jewish community. But Paul was specifically told, you will go to the ends of the earth. You will be my apostle to the Gentiles. And he did it. You know, it's amazing to consider that, especially in hindsight, how anybody could ever question Paul's apostleship. Look at the man. Look at his life. Look at his testimony. How could anyone ever doubt it? It seems crazy, but they they did. But in doing so, they were... uh, It's ridiculous because in questioning Paul, they were actually questioning their own basis of their Christian experience. Because what did Paul say You are the seal of my apostleship. The very people that he has brought to Christ are the very people who are questioning his authority. It seems ridiculous. There are certainly factions at work in the Corinthian community. And this is the thing I want to read. I want to encourage you to avoid factions. Rather, choose favor, but not Factions. We can see the factions right from the beginning of Corinthians. You know, in chapter 1, you have the group that's saying, Well, I, I belong to Peter. He's, he's the man for me. you get got the ones that say, Well, I, 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 Paulus." He, he, he's, yeah, he's the man. you got the one that say, Well, no, wait a minute, Paul. If we get Paul. Paul, Paul, he's the one who brought me to Christ. And then you got the one that say, Well, I have nothing to do with that. I mean, I'm totally for Jesus. So. You know, factions can erupt so easily. And are allowed to continue and fester. They can they divide. They can, they can cause damage. You know, I can imagine what it would have been like. Peter, very orthodox, very Jewish, and actually the Jewish community would be, be drawn to him, saying, "Well, I like the way that Pope Peter does things." You know, like, the stories he can tell about Jesus when he was on earth—he is definitely an apostle. I'm, I'm going to—apostle Peter's the apostle for me. I'm not going to listen to Paul anymore. Peter's the man. Whereas you've got the the new Gentile Christians. Paul is, no, he must be an apostle. You know, he speaks our language. And then you've got Paul somewhere in the middle. You know? (laughs) And then you've got the the one that's completely entirely different. says, well, we're pro-independent. We've got nothing to do with you. We're just for Jesus. I mean, it sounds funny, but... But it does happen. Factions arise in churches. And it's a damaging thing, it's a horrible thing. You know, and, and, and Paul tells him, you know, this, this is wrong. It shouldn't be happening. But sadly it does. You know, it reminds me that, you know, Billy Graham, you know, he's something of a, a spiritual father. to I me. Mean, I don't know him personally, but he was instrumental in bringing me to faith. You know, at that uh, mission rally in 1990, his mission rally was the crucible for me to make that decision to follow Christ. And so I esteem him, I look up to him, I I respect him, he's he's something of a spiritual father to me, but yet it breaks my heart that when I see the things written about him, spurious things, things that, you know, detriment to his character, and there's these things I read on the internet, it's horrible, you know. They take things out of context and... uh, it's just wrong. People that don't know him, you know, they cast suspicions on his character and his work. See the man for what he's done. Yeah. Right. But it's so easy. It's so easy to choose our favourites, and then you get carried away with it. You know, I remember another situation when I worked in a publishing company. You know, there was this uh, new lad had started, and the problem was that. He was the cousin of the boss's fiance, (laughs) which kind of put suspicions on his qualifications for the job right from the beginning. And it didn't help matters because the way in which he operated came across as being arrogant, a bit of a know-it-all. And he did have his blunders. But what had started in that office was like a grown, it was almost like a disease. A fungus had started growing amongst the rest of the staff. A whispering campaign, oh, he's awful. You know, and, and it really get exaggerated as it went on and it went on and went on. To the point, you, you couldn't recognize the person that they were talking about anymore. You know, and I have to say, it was, it's so easy to be caught up in the wave of that. I had to deliberately make a choice and a point of saying, I need to start, I'm not going to get caught up in this. And so I had to deliberately recognize the things that he did well and state them. And if that meant I had to be isolated from the general opinion in the office, then so be it. I had to deliberately make a point of being polite to him, even when he wasn't. And it wasn't for any other reason, because... That wasn't who I was. My identity wasn't found in casting aspersions in somebody else's character. I am to be found in Christ. I do need to stand apart. And it is the same for all of us. Look, I'm not setting myself up as some kind of saint here because there were times when I did get drawn into it. But every time I had to keep pulling myself away. So I know it's difficult, but it does make a difference when you do so. And where that becomes, you become the other one that they talk about in the office, then so be it. But we need to make a stand. You know, I want to be somebody that's recognised amongst those who build up rather than tear down. And we know that it's much easier to destroy than it is to build up. But I want to build up nonetheless. You know, goodness, how Paul could have benefited from a few a few more people in Corinth who were more ready to build them up than to try and tear them down. You know, when I think if they if they could look back in hindsight, the, the way what they did, the way they behaved towards them, but we're called to be gracious as well. You know, Paul's put it beautifully uh, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel so I'm going to read what Paul says and this, he wrote this uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 he says appreciate those who work diligently laboring among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another it's not just for the sacred, it's for the secular as well. Wherever walk of life you're in, whether you're in the church, whether you're in your office, whether you're in the, uh, the building site, have that attitude to the people who have charge over you. It will make a difference. Now even, particularly perhaps even to those who are the ones who are firing the, the, the barbs, they will recognize there is a different way here. Continuing on a the theme of being different, I want you to take encouragement as well from Paul's sense of identity, of who he is and what he is for. I want you to encourage you to choose Christ, not culture. The thing is, Paul knows he, who he is. He is an apostle, he is a messenger of Christ, a servant of the living God. There was no doubt about it in his mind he wasn't hanging on the temporal uh, fluctuating affections of the Corinth community to affirm him in who he was and what he was for. He knew his purpose. And he'd known it since the day that he encountered Christ. And here's the thing. It can be the same for us as well. You know, it became, it's so easy for us to build our sense of identity from our family history, our, our cultural backgrounds, the job that I do, the, the successes I've had in life or the failures I've had in life, the, the blessings that I've had, but perhaps also the baggage. These these things compete to give us a sense of identity. You know, I remember somebody I knew quite, quite a long time ago, and to be honest, she had a, a horrible, a horrible childhood. But the sad thing was that that childhood was the thing that she still carried around with her. That was the thing that created her identity. She was a, a pitiful soul because she hadn't moved on from then. Because of the things that happened in the past, that's the thing that she always introduced herself as I'm the person that this happened to. This is me. This is the sum of my, my life. I'm the, the poor soul that suffered this. It's so easy. We, we hold on to something that's happened in the past and say, well, this is who I am now and forever be. But, you know, it was a few years ago, I had a, a lovely uh, image <laughs> where she, For the first time in her life, she really discovered who Christ was. She embraced him to the fullness. And it was a complete turnaround in her life there's joy in her heart there's joy in her life because the past doesn't make her who she is anymore it is Christ who makes her who she is she really is a new creation she does, the, the past doesn't have any hold on her anymore she has an identity in Christ and that's the same for Paul and it was the same for her and it's the same for us as well but we need to keep pulling her back on ourselves I don't want to be conditioned by that I, I, I'm identified by him I serve him. He's the one that my life is about. Not my past situation. Not my current situation. It's him. Now and forever. And this is where Paul operates from. This is where he's able to endure all things. Because nothing else matters to him. You know, if you took Christ out of Paul, what would you be left with? Nothing. Who is Paul but without Christ? He's nothing. The old Saul died on the road to Damascus. This is Paul the Apostle now now and forevermore. You cannot have Paul without Christ. And it begs the question then, well how much of Christ is in me? You know, if you took Christ out of me, if you took Christ out of you, what would be left? What would anyone, would anybody recognize the difference? We need to ask ourselves this question. And I ask myself again and again because I will always come up against things, obstacles, mountains to overcome that make me think, how much of me have I surrendered to Christ? I did it yesterday. Am I willing to do the same again today? We need to keep moving on. We need to keep pressing to Christ. Paul says himself, I run the race. He's not there yet, but he's moving and he's, he's got his eyes on the prize and the direction. And he wants us to be the same. It's only by complete abandonment to Christ that we can overcome the world. It was only by dying to our rights. His privileges. By dying that you know, Paul was able to overcome the way of the world. And to say that in Christ I have no rights. I have a right to no rights. And three times he denied them. In verse 12, in verse 15, in verse 18, I've made no claim on these rights. They mean nothing to me. If they were a hindrance to him or to anyone else, he cast them off, he threw them away. It didn't matter anymore. Because his goal, his prize, his identity is in Christ alone. You know, Paul wrote in Philippians, uh, chapter 3 verse 8 more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ if there be anything that be a hindrance to me I will cast them off If there are hindrance to anyone else knowing Christ, I will cast them off. As I say, he's got his eye on the prize, which is Christ. He will endure all things, rights or no rights. And as Jesus said himself, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? You know, that illustration that Jesus gave us about the peril of great price, you know, when the trader saw it, he sold everything, he gave everything away so that he might have this. Sometimes our rights... Can be a stumbling block. He wants to see these Corinthians set free from the shackles of their their petty victories over one another and their claim to rights, so that they might secure the greatest prize of all, and that is to know Christ. You know, despite the degree of insult and contempt that was shown to Paul by the ungracious elements in the Corinthian community. He didn't complain, he didn't voice protest, even in the face of their insults when they extended hospitality to the rock star apostles who might have been visiting. He just simply continued to endure and to serve. And it's amazing when you consider that aside from Ephesus, he invested as much time there, as, more time there than he did anywhere else. He spent 18 months in Corinth under these conditions. He put aside any right to support from these spiritual children. And why did he do it? Well, if you go back a few chapters, I think the crux of the answer is there. It says in chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, The Lord spoke to me in a vision. And he said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no will attack you or hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Damn his rights. Christ was reason enough not for pay gain or being glory but to serve Christ, to bring glory to Christ that he might freely make known the gospel of Christ. And therefore it begs the question, what rights Am I so grieved about that I'm so tempted to trade in as a passing riches found in Christ for the pampering of a bruised ego? There are none. I want it to be Christ. I want it to be Christ for you as well. I want to close with this verse and as an encouragement. You know, when you look at Paul and his character, you see an encouraging thing because it's reminiscent of somebody else. Now, this is what he wrote in Romans 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's not too too dissimilar, are they, Christ and Paul? I think we've got a fairly good model there to follow after. Cast off the things that hold you back. Take hold of Christ. Amen.